<laughs> Welcome to the Mormons and Drugs podcast, a weekly podcast wherein I discuss the shockingly frequent intersections of Mormonism, magic, and drugs. I am Cody, the pizza cook, history fan, and your sometimes overly ranty host. Nikoni. Nikoni. That's all my. That's my full name. Uh-huh. Legal. That's my legal name. No. How you doing, Moth Doula? I'm. I'm holding in. There. Holding in. Yeah. <laughs> For those of you in the future, we're recording future. this in the past yeah. during the plagues, and life is interesting at the moment. I actually, I'm enjoying being yeah. stuck at home. It's a lot of time to do this kind of shit. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, we're keeping it together. <laughs> <laughs> I've got cabin fever. That's the part where you go, I've got it too. I've got it too. <laughs> um, I want to watch the Muppets now. I know. My brother took away my Disney Plus account. What a jerk. Mm. How dare he cancel his, <laughs> his account. <laughs> um. So anyway, uh... You know, if you're into continuity uh, in a relatively clear timeline, this is a one of our this is our first tangential rant episode. Technically, anyway, if you're into continuity, you should probably go back and move forward from episode one. But anyway, if not, this is probably the best episode that you could just jump in on. Mm-hmm. So I don't know why I said all that during <laughs> during the last few weeks. There's been a serious lack of Mormons and drugs in a podcast named Mormons and Drugs. Uh, technically, all the people we've talked about so far aren't Mormons at this point in the no, timeline. It's a build up to Mormons, and uh, there's been speculative drug use. Specula- but well, I mean, we've got a, a lot drunk of dad. We've got some yeah, very possible drug diggings. Oh, for sure, and excavating. Uh, it's it's not till later in the timeline where things get like right explicitly wild and crazy. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, so, he's just he's just nineteen, so so this uh, episode will start off like I said the. Uh, what we're calling tangential rants. This is where I'm just going to like r- rant about drugs and magic and history or Mormon theology. Well, basically whatever I feel like ranting about during a given recording. Um, so might I in a nutshell? <laughs> yeah, you get to feel what it's like to be Moth Dula. For, a day. for just <laughs> an hour or so. So a lot of these episodes are information that are either directly pulled from the book that I have in the works uh, that I keep mentioning, but not really talking much about. Or uh, otherwise, something I can't really put into the book for one reason or another. Uh, so that this episode and the next are the former option, being directly pulled from the first chapter of my book, which I imagine I'll be posting as a teaser of some kind in the near future. So yeah, let's go. Because I suspect a lot of you are ex-Mormons or current ones, the next two episodes are all about the science of drugs specifically in regards to entheogenic agents and sessions. I know personally that the church teaches abstinence as a rule. So to those unfamiliar with uh, the powerful substances we've been highlighting from time to time, uh, the thought of a spiritual leader distributing hallucinogenic drugs may seem slanderous or even anti-Mormon. Such is most certainly not the case, however, in a world where doctors routinely perform open-heart transplants, uh, Again, routinely resurrecting a dead person with the organs of another deceased person, it's easy for us to forget the magic that takes place around us every day. And, you know, just a century ago, this concept was designated a medical impossibility and so resigned to the realms of science fiction and necromancy. 
just to discover a demonstrable explanation and mechanism for a miraculous event does not in any way negate the fact that a miracle in fact occurred in my opinion. Uh, it's with that attitude that I'm moving forward and this information is presented. I'm not trying to take the magic or divine out of Mormonism. In fact, quite the contrary. My work, I think, is an attempt to reinsert the magic and magical competency of the original church back into modern-day Mormonism. I may not believe the narrative or literature of Joseph Smith, and neither do I agree with or support much of anything the modern church stands for. Uh, but I can't I can't appreciate how deeply his form of drug-fueled Christian mysticism <laughs> affected the outcome of the world. Uh, you know, with better historical context, maybe the members of the church who do believe can help steer the ship away from dogmatic nonsense like racism and homophobia or, you know, just like religious elitism <laughs> uh, and maybe closer towards a productive and universally inclusive religion. You know, psychedelics, as will be highlighted through the narrative episodes, can be used with malevolent or benevolent intent and effect. And it's education and safe access that I think are the keys to keeping things tipped on the benevolent side of things. Um, there's a lot of nasty characters out there that are trying to take advantage of everybody in every field. And All the I, time. <laughs> I think uh, having examples like the birth of Mormonism gives a great highlight into how a pious fraud can <laughs> perpetuate real belief in people, but also take advantage of them while doing that. Anyway, uh, I digress. <laughs> in uh, my opinion, one of the fewly truly universal human experiences regards the pursuit of altered states of consciousness. Quite often, these states are sought in order to elicit mystical experiences or, you know, otherworldly communications, otherwise known as theophany. The methods for achieving such states of consciousness are generally broken down into two main categories, terms you've likely heard me use before but never really explain, that being endogenous and exogenous. I apologize for now explaining this. Uh, my only excuse is that I'm a dishwasher professionally and in no way a podcasting expert person. <laughs> uh, the first category uh, endogenous uh, referring to so-called on the natch experiences wherein the participant reaches an altered state without the aid of outside stimuli this would be achieved via a wide range of ancient practices such as uh, intentional and intensive breath work uh, or stretching like yoga ecstatic dance chanting drumming physical exertion to the point of exhaustion is a good one uh, religious initiation there's like many many more some of which we did this morning to relax. Yeah. I was just about to ask, do you have any uh, endogenous methods that you use to... I, as you know, am a uh, frequent user of anxiety. Do you use anxiety? <laughs> it's like fuel? No, I wish. I guess actually, yes, I do like get myself all riled up into an anxiety kind of state to get myself to like accomplish a bunch of stuff. How well it's done? I'm not so sure. Not, yeah. um, I guess getting paperwork and things done and getting me motivated is how I use it. But obviously that's not so helpful. So especially like when we're doing this. So we, uh, did a little bit of yoga and did some breathing <laughs> and, uh, nature is a huge thing. Have you ever had a major like visionary 
level religious experience in nature or doing yoga? In doing yoga in the uh, visual? Like comparatively to, uh, say, mushrooms or LSD. Not that you, you'd be admitting to doing such things, but you know, you've heard me rant about it enough <laughs> yeah. at this point that I'm sure you have a good idea. Mm, no, I think I just pretty much just, not visual or anything like that, I don't believe. I think I've just pretty much used it to maintain sanity. Um, okay, so like as a grounding technique. It's a grounding technique for okay. sure. Hiking, all of that stuff. It's just a grounding technique to bring me back down to earth. Not... I've I've never had the time nor the uh, consistency to have that. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think you'd have to be really consistent, really disciplined. Disciplined, yeah. I'd have to be very disciplined in in all of that. And I'm just I am too much of a a slight of a mess. You know, I'm one of those like artsy people that's like kind of a mess, mm-hmm. but I've got enough Virgo in me to kind of have it organized. Okay. Not enough though. I'm not like a Virgo. I wish. I'm not a Beyonce. <laughs> <laughs> um, I ask because I've, I've had, uh, I've had experiences like, especially with uh, physical exertion to the mm. point of exhaustion, there's a point at which you're just your mind breaks and you, I've had full blown hallucinations and weird kind of trans transcendent uh, experiences that are like on par with psychedelics. Yeah. It's not something I can consistently or reliably induce. Cause like you, I have a, <laughs> I have a problem with staying consistent, uh, staying consistent yeah. and discipline yeah. and like having it as a practice. Right. I mean, but, you really have to devote yeah. to get to that point. Mm-hmm. And I've been physically exerted to the point of exhaustion, like at my boarding school and stuff, but that's just like, okay, you're done. Keep moving. Yeah. You know, there's no like sitting there and being like, re- I, I've experienced the endorphins and mm-hmm. the rush, but then they just, they, you know, pushed you to use that fuel for something else, like shoveling massive amounts of that's a good. Shit. That's a good point. I did, uh, the thing I was doing was like a, um, a retreat with a bunch of guys I did a keto with and mm. we were specifically like hiking, not eating. Yeah. And then we'd sit and meditate. So it was like by the end of, I think it was the second day I was just like, whoa, 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 right. whoa. And whoa. that's a combination <laughs> of stuff as well. But like, it was intentional. It was like a, right. someone was trying to elicit that kind of experience right. in us it was versus com- just like. It's perfect. It's a combination of <laughs> different methods. Dogs. Right. And then your entire day was devoted for several days to that. So. I'll probably get into some of the variables in next the next episode, but that gets into like set setting intention, right. all that stuff. Um, and you anyway. guys were just hiking, exerting yourself to the extreme, not I guess indulging in consumption of yeah. any kind, probably except water. We uh, yeah, it was all uh, just water, and we had a little bit of tea, and then like the rule was you could f- eat anything you found. So in like two days, we we shared a handful of berries, and like <laughs> I I w- we all went fishing at one point just for fun, and I caught like an inch long fish that I I roasted, and we all shared. <laughs> That's wonderful. But it That's was uh, it was by the by the end of like the second day, we uh, we finally got to home. Okay, and like we all had like a beer. And <laughs> just relaxed. Nice. I got, and I was already just tripping balls. Right. And I had a beer, and I just, I like, I went next level. 
uh, just because my body was so starved for calories. What What do you mean next level? Because I mean, I can think about times where I was pushed at like 15 or I had to walk around the desert. But I mean, we had supplies, but we were only allowed to eat. We had rations. So like mm-hmm. we can only eat so much. And especially if we weren't good, you had to keep walking through this desert with everything on your back. And I remember we were good one time. And so we got an orange and that orange was like, better than any chocolate I've ever had mm-hmm. in my life. Like it just was the fruit of the gods. No, this was literally, I, I, I drank my beer. We talked, everyone talked for like 15, 20 minutes and giggled and laughed. And we're like, Oh, oh this feels experience. so good. And then we like laid down and I cl- closed eye visuals, like full blown. I was seeing lights and patterns and oh. fractals. And I had a very transcendent experience where I like came out of my body and was like walking around the cabin and stuff. And it was, yeah. But it, again, it's only, I've only done that like twice. And how old were you? I was 19, 20, 19 to 20. So a few years older, which makes, you know, it helps. And I'm also, I don't know. And you don't have to answer the question, but like, I'm guessing you also might've been a frequent pot user. Uh, I was at that time. Yeah. You were? Yeah, I just started smoking regularly. Yeah, because that also, when you like physically exert yourself and and you're not smoking, brings all of that up out into your body. I probably had also really uh, well. I remember because I I wasn't really at 15. It is why I was sent there because my parents just swore I was just into massive amounts of drugs when I definitely wasn't. I was way too much of a loser, but. Um, I know that I did have dreams and I know that's a part of it is like, if you don't smoke pot anymore, then you have a bunch of very like, uh, I guess glorifying pot smoking dreams. <laughs> and then like it brings, you know, you're exerting yourself, you're bringing all these toxins and other chemicals out and sweating them out because your body's just using all that stuff. So you can feel that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know some of the other kids who did use more, um, they were just like, oh, I feel high. And we'd be like, mm, cause you are. Yeah. <laughs> your body's using all those reserve, like reserves that you had in your fat or wherever it was stored. I can't remember what it's called, but the, uh, uh, the thing running runners high. Yeah. That, that is, too. It is a, I think it's a, a, it's a type of chemical that's related to cannabinoids. Yeah. I can't remember what it is, but I remember reading something about that. Could be a stoner moment, but <laughs> <laughs> I think most of our stuff is stoner. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah um yeah again endorphins yay so that yeah uh endogenous endorphins are endogenous uh and if you can some people can do that and kind of right piggyback off of their endorphins into a super transcendent state and they can do it regularly i'm not one of those monks people. is this something they do yes yeah okay uh, well it's yeah it's kind of a regular when you start meditating regularly there's a often reports of some funky paranormal stuff happening so anyway, uh, <laughs> now that we've digressed for 10 minutes, um, exogenous, the, the second term I've referred to probably more than endogenous is exogenous, uh, which is referring to methods that would first involve the intake of chemical substances originating from outside of the body. So drugs, okay. the other Pla- stuff they can, you know, plants. plants, fungi, yeah. uh, or straight or up chemicals. chemical drugs, yeah. whatever. LSD is a fantastic chemical. Which is? LSD is a fantastic chemical. I mean, 
Not that I would know personally. I just <laughs> you I, I mean, I've admitted to it for <laughs> <laughs> okay. your migraines. So. It's, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> as a as a uh, rapscallion uh, younger person, I may have indulged. You've admitted and expressed that it You're helped with your migraines. Probably which right. Is great. I wish we could edit audio. It's an impossibility, though. So. What do you mean? We can't edit that out ever. Why? <laughs> I'm joking. Oh. I was like, uh, we have like full editing capabilities. <laughs> We're doing it right now. <laughs> as shocking as it may sound to the uninitiated, there actually exists a class of chemical substances with a long-standing reputation for reliably catalyzing exogenous mystical experiences. Uh, as a side note, when I was a tiny wee Mormon child, this concept would have seemed like a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde level of nonsense or like a batman episode like this was on par with batman storylines to me um something a obviously a comic book villain would have come up with uh to invent or utilize you know like the idea that someone could drink something and see god was just like yeah that's insane yes batman level bullshit to me i love me some batman bullshit but (laughs) (laughs) it's not real um, no, it does seem a little out of worldly. So if I'm covering this a little too too deep, it's just because as a like as an ex Mormon, I for very mo- a lot of my life did had thought this was completely impossible nonsense. Um, and hippies who like talked about seeing God or whatever when they, it was just ludicrous to me. While there exist a score of different plant based concoctions and applications, and as well as fungal ones. When used for spiritual or religious purposes, these substances are now more commonly referred to as entheogens, which I'm sure you've heard me say. Again, something I probably should have explained by now, but I'm I'm not a professional. (laughs) A term coined by uh, in 1979 by a multidisciplinary group of academics, entheogen translates roughly to generating the god within. These entheogenic compounds are more regularly referring to the classic psychedelics, namely mescaline, LSD, psilocybin, and DMT. However, other compounds, such as opium, nitrous oxide, cannabis, ketamine, and uh, ephedra sometimes, iboga, uh, MDMA, and the so-called hexing herbs, uh, and a bunch more, have all been used as entheogenic agents to great effect under proper contexts. While the term entheogen is relatively modern, our ancestors certainly appreciated such substances and utilized them whenever they were aware of their existence. I don't particularly like this term as it's most commonly used at the moment because there are a host of dose and setting related responses that these drugs are definitely not entheogenic. Uh, you can use them recreationally just as much as entheogenically. And I, I rather like to use the term like entheogenic session or entheogenic purposes or entheogenic agents. Okay. And you're uh, just, you're talking about things more than just medication. Yeah. So like, you know, LSD can be used recreationally mm-hmm. as much as it can be entheogenic and one can use the same drug for either purpose. Right. So we should be using it more as like a specific classification of use and action or experience mm-hmm. instead of a mention to the drug itself. So like LSD is not necessarily, in my opinion, an entheogen, but right. it can act entheogenically. Anyway, I'm off in the weeds. I'm kind of a psychedelic snob, I guess. So. <laughs> Take that as you will. 
To those unfamiliar with entheogens, the concept of a drug which could elicit a perceived communication with deity may come across as bullshit or hippie hyperbole. Uh, while we are seeing a recent change in this thinking, for the large part still in today's society, so-called drugs are often viewed as a decadent or like unsavory alternative to somehow more legitimate endogenous methods of achieving the- theophany. So like... You know, cause you do yoga, you're somehow better than somebody that takes LSD or psilocybin to do, to get to the same like spiritual place. Do you mm. know what I mean? Yeah. And that's kind of changing, but it's still, I think the, the default mindset of most of America, at least. Yeah. I don't disagree with that. I, you can't, I don't see that you can't use LSD on a regular basis. Oh, for sure. Yoga Some, and meditation most, you like can, can use on a regular basis. I don't see it being beneficial to be used on a daily basis to maintain that state Mm -hmm. i'm sure it's completely possible for people to maybe use them in sessions and get to that state and be able to maintain that state i'm assuming with the usage of other things like meditation and yoga but i think it's much more difficult for someone to have a session and maintain that state for a long period of time Mm -hmm. than um, than yoga or meditation or the bells or hiking. It's definitely not as sustainable, I think. Right. Um, you know, and, and, and I don't historically think it's, it's speaking, accessible. Yeah. Historically speaking, most of these plants and fungi and stuff were like seasonally available and you could store them. But I mean, basically festivals and stuff was the time where everybody got to like fall harvest, obviously, it was a great time to take a bunch of drugs and do a bunch of stuff. Winter harvest, Purge maybe. It out. Yeah. Was the next time you got to have an excuse to do that, but like, which I think you got to kind of conserve things until the next year, so you can't do it all the time, right? Which is that seems manageable as well. Mm-hmm. It's that's totally doable, but uh, certain personality types wouldn't be able to do that. It's oh, not for, sure. for everyone. Oh yeah, and is I guess where I'm at. It's a very uh, su- subjective uh, protocol yeah. for like how often and how much. And I guess their mindset on the whole concept as well. Mm-hmm. There's there's a lot of things that aren't regulated with that that make it as productive as mm-hmm. it could be on the whole. Well, that's the point of, of these next two episodes is essentially to uh, help better educate uh, the wider populace, uh, especially those who don't know anything about any of this, yeah. uh, into like, here's a kind of a well-balanced approach to this and... Maybe don't swing too hard the other way. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe come at this a little more skeptically and with uh, safety in mind. It's like safety and education. I think like this, you know, what contributed to our way of thinking about all of these things is like drugs and negatively, aside from like the cannabis propaganda uh, with the Hearst newspapers, like we'll get into that, I'm sure at some point. Okay. Essentially, I think the sweeping temperance and prohibition movements in the Western world, uh, especially like England and America, that later morphed into America's war on drugs and Nancy Reagan, you know, just say no. The, I, I like the more not modern term, just say no, that's spelt K-N-O-W. Uh, just say no. A much better twist on that. Such a better twist on it. Anyway, uh, these scientifically unfounded and ignorant, just utterly unhistorical biases need to be collectively shaken off if we are to truly understand our place in history and the incredibly nuanced experience that is human consciousness. You know, it's not all waking, sober consciousness. (laughs) 
Uh, as Clark Heinrich so eloquently put in his 2002 book, uh, Magic Mushrooms in Religion and Alchemy, quote, the idea of drug use in religion is a very controversial subject. It's also a subject about which many people are rather sensitive, preferring to consider such usage an aberration to the distant past. Yet it remains a topic that ignorance will not make disappear. In a time when wars are being raged against drug use and all illegal drugs are lumped together as the enemy, it is more important than ever to speak openly and rationally about drugs, especially those that serve a useful and relatively benign purpose, unquote. It cannot be overstated that, you know, indeed, certain fortunate individuals can induce these religious or mystical experiences naturally through a variety of practices. But again, you have to have time to practice this and you have to have like devotion and uh, the ability to practice that regularly and get good at it. Even people that are naturally talented at it can't induce this regularly unless they practice at it all the time. It's just like every other thing humans do. Um, that being said, generally, these methods are not as reliable or demonstrable as entheogenic sessions. Right, right, right. And uh, are sadly limited to certain individuals with a talent or, you know, one who's been initiated into such an experience. This is especially apparent when one is analyzing visionary experiences, which are shared by a group of people more than once. Uh, something traditionally difficult, if not impossible, to induce on command. Throughout this story, there's going to be times where, like, Joseph Smith is like, hey, tomorrow you're going to see God. Yeah. And then he gives them the sacrament, feeds them something, and they drink something. And then, lo and behold, about an hour later, <laughs> they start to see God. Um, so when we come to those moments, this is what I'm talking about. Uh, anytime there's a group of people that someone else is like, hey, you're going to see this and we're going to do this. And they orchestrate that to happen, and it happens, and it keeps happening. There's got to be a chemical catalyst yes, at play. Absolutely. Especially if they're eating and drinking something beforehand um, or smoking. There's a lot of scenes where like the, the elders of the church are smoking together in an upper room, and someone calls it like an odiferous herb, which these men are used to tobacco. If something smells weird, they're like, hey, that – <laughs> what are you? What's in your pipe? But I've even known relig people to go to religious retreats and things like that, and they will see smoke coming from underneath the doors. Mm -hmm. like, and this is current times. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the incense preparations for temple use was entheogenic. Like uh, Chris Bennett has done unbelievable work on uh, the – and we may do a Moses episode, but <laughs> there's, he's done incredible work on – the tabernacle protocols and how like the, the highest priest after doing all these cleansing and anointing rituals, which included a cannabis based oil that you covered yourself in from head to foot, you would go in the back of this room, the Holy of Holies with all these curtains drawn and basically hot box yourself right, yeah. with psychoactive drugs. And then lo and behold, you'd come out talking to God. And in the Jewish texts, they regularly report, you know, the priests following a pillar of smoke. Um, it's again, you just like read a little bit between the lines and it's, it's pretty obvious what's going on or at least what's eliciting that experience. Very witchy. I've read some mm -hmm. very similar witchy things. They take two baths, cover mm -hmm. themselves in an oil, the witch normally with an, a hexing herb. And then again, burn and hot box the entire room mm -hmm. and take off on their brooms. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's all replicated in different 
Yeah, and every it, it's one of those archetypes. Everybody kind of follows these protocols, and you end up going to the place you want to go to. Again, we'll get into some of those variables next episode. What you were referring to, the witch's ointment. If anybody's interested, Tom Hatzis's book is very illuminating on that subject. Anyway, the the whole um, for an entire group of individuals, like I was saying, to reliably choreograph a shared mystical experience of visionary proportions just seems like a chemical catalyst is more than likely being incorporated, especially if there's something being eaten, drank, or smoked before that. The entheogenic administration of plants and fungi reaches back to the very beginning of human history and is like finally being recognized uh, universally as having an integral role in the birth of religion. And, you know, it's not heretical or antithetical to to make that claim anymore. Mm -hmm. The examples included in this podcast are by no means comprehensive. I'm sure we'll do more episodes where I just rant about (laughs) the historical context of this stuff. We're just simply covering a mere fraction of the available evidence uh, that supports this hypothesis. So, you know, drugs aren't all bad. Okay. This is what I like to call a scientific approach to mysticism. As I just alluded to, there does not exist a drug which only accomplishes simply one thing. Uh, Aspirin even has a variety of effects that are dose-dependent, which is why most people tend to use it only as directed. (laughs) If you take too much aspirin, you're going to die. This response variation is especially apparent when it comes to visionary agents, uh, more commonly known as the classic psychedelics or visionary compounds. They have such a wide uh, breadth of doses and potential psychological responses that it becomes difficult to classify them under one umbrella term. Uh, For example, a single plant and its primary chemical constituents can be used as an intoxicant, a poison, an entheogen, a deliriant, or for, you know, just dream induction. Right. I mean, all all medicinal herbs have these classifications, a demulcent and expectorant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is... Yeah, and it's it's these ones in particular that are like visionary agents that have a, a huge psychological right. breadth of responses. Um, I'm just therefore, saying for any of the herbalists out there, or any anyone who's just like not into herbology, like this is a this is every, just another category. Anything you take, uh, or it's it's a common adage. I don't have my notes, but it's essentially anything can be a poison or a medicine. It's just dose. Oh, right, exactly. I think yes. it was Paracelsus that said that. Um, um, we, we could look up and all of it, but yes, that is a... I'm sure someone will correct us. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, therefore, it, it's maybe like a disservice to ever simply file any one plant or chemical under one classification, as they've been used for too wide a variety of both beneficial and malicious purposes throughout human history. Uh, this confusion and difficulty regarding the classification of these compounds still plagues the field of pharmacology and psychedelic research today. And, you know, more educated dialogue is needed to be circulated if that's to change. Um, While philosophers, poets, and mystics have been utilizing plants and fungal-based intoxicants for thousands of years, again, we may perhaps do another tangential episode about that, uh, it's not until modern chemistry united with psychoanalysis that the empirical study of such materials began to take on a new and wholly legitimate meaning in the Western mind. Although some were keen to such substances, it was not until the late 19th century and into the early 20th century that the use of (laughs) – those aren't elephants, those are children running. Children. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, it wasn't until the late 19th century and into the early 20th century that the use of opium, hashish, mescaline, and nitrous oxide, mainly, uh, provided academics with a demonstrably repeatable mystical experience, regardless of one's previous predisposition to them. These substances allowed for a reliable method of regularly delving into and making a study of the deeper realms of human perception. As philosopher William James noted in his book, The Variety of Religious Experience, quote, Our normal waking consciousness, rational consciousness as we call it, is but one special type of consciousness. Whilst all about it, parted from it by the filmiest of screens, there lies potential forms of consciousness entirely different. We may go through life without suspecting their existence, but apply the requisite stimulus, and at a touch, there they are in their completeness. Unquote. It would seem that once the requisite stimuli had been discovered by modern science, the infant field of psychology was raised into maturity hand in metaphorical hand with psychedelic compounds for the next 50 years. Mescaline was the first of the traditional psychedelics to be discovered and openly experimented with under modern scientific conditions. The cacti from which the key psychoactive alkaloid is derived has been known and utilized by the indigenous people of America for thousands of years. However, it was not, again, until the late 19th century that mescaline and its effects were taken seriously by Western academia. Philosophers, chemists, and psychiatrists Psychiatrists alike throughout Europe and America began experimenting with the substance and immediately noticed its profound ability to plunge one into deeply altered states. In 1986, in 1896, it was in fact a Mormon chemist who gave one of the earliest explicit descriptions of peyote intoxication by a Westerner. Oh, that's one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah, you've heard this a few times, I imagine. <laughs> but I do love this part. <laughs> this account was published in the Mormon newspaper, The Mantime Messenger, under the title Joy for the Toppers. And Toppers? Toppers is uh, is kind of referring to the little button-like Okay, uh, so peyote. Joy for the Toppers. Joy, as in for, the joy toppers. for the little buttons. Yep. All right. Quote, on closing my eyes, I could see all sorts of designs in brilliant and ever-changing colors, such as no human being has ever enjoyed under normal conditions. <laughs> my mind was perfectly clear. An ever-different panorama of infinite beauty and grandeur hurried before me. My pleasure so far passed the more ordinary realms of delight as to bring me to the high ecstatic state in which our exclamation of enjoyment became involuntary. So you're just like, ah! <laughs> 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 Oh, God. <laughs> Uh, the loss of conception of time and space was a marked feature of my experience, unquote. And I'm sorry, what was this? Is this a chemist? This is a chemist. I get, yeah, again, this is a very eloquent report, which was published in a pro-Mormon publication from a clearly articulate and clear-headed Mormon chemist. Okay. So. And um, do you know his name? Uh, I don't. That's he okay. was just. I think he was just mentioned in the report as a local Mormon chemist. Okay. I think he, he might not to keep have wanted his name to give his name. Yeah. Yeah, but very explicit description and very like well spoken. Yeah. Uh, especially like marking that time and space were yeah. just like yeah. concepts to him. Yeah. So one year later, after this publication in 1897, mescaline was isolated for the first time by German chemist Arthur Heffer. Hefter. Arthur. Arthur Hefter. Hefter. After preliminary experiences with the peyote buttons on himself, the newly discovered alkaloid and the secret of its source soon circulated throughout Europe, further influencing the scientific and artistic minds alike. Uh, 
Psychedelic researcher and author Albert Pike beautifully highlights the spread of mescaline and peyote among a pre-leary group of Harvard University researchers, which called themselves the Harvard Aesthetics. And this is around the 1920s. Yes. Yes. Okay, so um, you're, you're jumping I, time. I, I am a little bit, but I, I, I should probably explain. <laughs> I just said pre-leary group of Harvard uh, researchers. Uh, that what I meant by that is a uh, uh, birth of the birth of the psychedelic renaissance uh, is usually pinpointed to, uh, or one of the landmarks of the renaissance is like Timothy Leary and his uh, associate Al, uh, Richard Alpert in Harvard University started a group called this uh, Harvard Psilocybin Project, and um, they using psilocybin experimented on their like. So friends they already and colleagues. knew about psilocybin. That had yeah. already been isolated. We'll get we'll get to like when that was isolated eventually, but this group uh, using psilocybin in Harvard during the early 1960s, I think, um, started giving it out to their friends and colleagues and and basically documenting their experiences with it. But they were uh, using psilocybin, not mescaline, or were they? They were using psilocybin and LSD um, mostly, and they were documenting experiences in a in a rather like scientific with a scientific approach. And these guys were all educated, obviously going to Harvard. They were all professional psychoanalysts. So they and all had graduated. Psychiatrists. Yep. I don't, Timothy Leary, I don't know if he had graduated at the time. Richard Alpert was already like a very successful psychiatrist and, um, and psychoanalyst. Um, the anyway, of the mind. they both got fired over all of this eventually. Really? And it helped like spark the, the hippie movement and like the birth of, you know, people taking drugs to elicit these mystical experiences. We'll get more into this later, but, uh, you know, like Richard Alpert is, if you're familiar with Ram Dass and, uh, be here now, mm-hmm. that's Richard Alpert. Okay. He, he eventually, like after he got fired, he went to India and became Ram Dass. Okay. So Richard Alpert's, wait, Richard Alpert mm-hmm. is Ram Dass. Is Ram Dass. Yeah. Um, and his guru and the Beatles and LSD and like all that kind of got is what helped like launch. Uh, that into the the stratosphere of the human zeitgeist anyway uh timothy leary is probably in part why i have maybe like an old grandpa point of view when it comes (laughs) to psychedelics you know while he was a huge factor to the psychedelic renaissance and in many ways one of the godparents of psychedelic research his like over enthusiasm and advocacy for psychedelics in the end may have done a great deal of harm as well as good and i I think this is why like a more balanced perspective or approach is needed if these things are going to change anytime soon. Like we see ourselves at this point in psychedelic research that we did in the 1960s mm-hmm. and we have another Nixon in office. So this could go either way, in my opinion. And unless but we- we've already kind of done this indulged too far. Yeah. So we've kind of learned our lessons a bit, I, I feel. As a student of history, <laughs> I, t- I don't know that we always learn our lessons. <laughs> so my pessimism is perhaps, yeah, uh, due to <laughs> my knowledge of history. Um, I, I'm doing, I'm doing it again. I was doing, I was ranting again. Um, anyway, uh, author Albert Pike. Uh, highlighted a preliminary group. That's what I. That's where I was the at. Preliminary group, and we're back. And we are. <laughs> okay. While there was clearly a, an atmosphere of college hedonism involved, the group, the Harvard Ascetics, uh, this group also used mescaline as a means of exploring their own consciousness, spirituality, and uh, creative potential. Led by musician and composer Virgil Thompson during the early 1920s, like you said. 
The Harvard Aesthetics members helped spread the use of psychedelic substances among American and European artists, poets, uh, cultists, and theologians. So this, Virgil Thompson led the group? Mm-hmm. The Harvard, Harvard Aesthetics, mm-hmm. not the psilocybin group? No. Okay. That was uh, Leary. So, again, this is uh, probably a good 40 years before the uh, the Leary group was running around Harvard and what's considered the traditional birth of the psychedelic renaissance so this is 40 years you said earlier yes and okay, so most people like don't know about this this is one of the few things i i so <laughs> alfred I pike is soapbox. virgil thompson's leading this harvard athletics group aesthetics, aesthetics. <laughs> <laughs> sorry um harvard aesthetics group um around harvard 40 years before yeah at the and harvard this- psilocybin group that timothy leary started okay and and as pike the guy i mentioned earlier the author uh noted this also had a major influence on the development of the beat movement so this group had like had a huge influence on our art in the 1920s that which led into you know the hippie movement all that um so coincidentally the peyote that was being supplied to the harvard aesthetics was coming from a one frederick m smith phd uh, who, aside from being a doctor of psychology, was at the time the third prophet or president of the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, who from now on, just for ease of use, I'll call the RLDS. Um, also worth noting is that lifelong Mormon Frederick M. Smith was himself a direct grandson of none other than the founder of Mormonism, Joseph Smith. Which really helps kind of support and cradle that this might have been a family endeavor <laughs> yeah, and yeah. secret. In case you need me to repeat that, I, I, you know, if we were like a real podcast, we'd have like one of those sound effects where it indicates a what, what, what I moment. Can, I can do that. Okay. okay. Wait, 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 tell me when to do it. What, what like right now. Right, wh- okay. right now. Right now. What? Yeah. So. <laughs> we, Did you do it? We don't. Too soon? I don't. We don't have. We're not professionals. I'll just repeat it then. Okay. Oh, so I did it too <laughs> soon. You told me to do it now. I. I don't know what kind of sound we would use, but it would indicate that this moment has arrived. We should have planned this. Um, anyway, Frederick M. Smith, the the direct grandson of Joseph Smith, oh, who is the third prophet president of of the RLDS Church. Third prophet. Third prophet is supplying the Harvard Aesthetics with peyote. What? 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 <laughs> um. So the Harvard Aesthetics leader. Uh, Virgil Thompson had become childhood friends with Alice Smith, Frederick's eldest daughter, and it was like a welcome visitor to the family's home. Uh, one night, old time family friend, right? Yeah, old time. And you know, he went to college and he would come back periodically and just visit the family. And it was during one of these visits, one night after Thompson had joined the Smiths for dinner, uh, Dr. Smith shared his experiences regarding peyote with Thompson and agreed to supply the young composer with some buttons before bed under the condition that Virgil document his experiences for the doctor. Because he was also a psychologist. Yeah, and he was just, he was interested in these states of consciousness and wanted, he, this was a reliable, smart kid I've known for since he was a kid. Yeah, I know. And he's off in college. I want him to like document what's going on with him as an artist. 
Historian Shelby Barnes described Smith's motivation for openly sharing psychedelics among Harvard's uh, artistically inclined with, quote, believing that the peyote experience first released, then enhanced the human mind toward creative expansion. He understandably encouraged other u- others to use the drug. So he, as a user of this, noticed that, you know, it's great for the imagination. As we will see, Joseph Smith had a great imagination. He did. So as a scientifically minded academic, Frederick Smith wished to document the experiences of this talented musician, you know, like Thompson, with whom, like I said, he had a good rapport and association with. He was just a good, bright kid, which is very clinical of him. Yes. And no, yeah. forward thinking given the time period. Frederick M. Smith's well-documented participation in and advocacy for peyote ceremonies reached back nearly a decade prior to this at uh, back to 1913 and continued forward with relative regularity until his establishment as the peyote supplier to the Harvard Aesthetics, which was nearly a decade later. So like t- almost 10 years of regular peyote use whenever he could get it. Uh, in 1915, Two years after he began taking peyote regularly, Fred M. became the third prophet or leader of the reorganized church. So he didn't become prophet till after he was using peyote regularly. And just a year later in 1916 is when he got his PhD in psychology from Clark University. Uh, where Fred's interest in altered states of consciousness was like well noted by his academic contemporaries. Um, and two years later, after he gets his doctorate, uh, in, and, you know, three years after he's been the sitting president of the RLDS church in 1918, uh, in the same year he shared a peyote ceremony with his wife, Ruth, uh, he also published the higher powers of man. The book was mo- mainly focused on altered states of consciousness and how to achieve them beneficially, as well as containing a lengthy se- section regarding the profoundly beneficial applications of peyote among the Amer- American Indians. So he wrote a book. All about the usage of this. Mm-hmm. And interesting to our like historical discussion uh, with, with Joseph Smith, Fred M. was an advocate for plant-based intoxicants, but really didn't like or think much of alcohol-based intoxicants. Um, and it seems a trope in the Smith family that they just don't do well with ac- alcohol-based um, concoctions or tinctures or anything like that, that they really like plant extracts or just plants themselves which I find really interesting. And it, it's it, what's interesting is that it is a trope the whole family shares. <laughs> it, that is interesting. And, well, they want to go deeper. Mm-hmm. They don't want to sit on the fringe. We'll get to it later. But there's a scene where even Joseph Smith um, is trying to appease some of the, the local um, congregation by like promoting the temperance movement. And he gives a whole uh, speech to the brethren about how, you know, alcohol is evil and blah, 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 blah. But you can achieve the same things with simple plants and, and, and uh, fungi. Where he's just like, you can still get, you can still get messed up and like have fun and get drunk. We're just going to use these things. Um, well, so. it's a bit different. <laughs> I mean, you can use them recreationally for sure. And and he would, that's essentially what he was saying is like, we need to stop getting drunk and drinking all this alcohol because we use it medicinally as well and we don't have a whole lot of it. Also, you guys are kind of selling a lot of it on the side and not paying tithes. So I'm not getting a piece of that. <laughs> so I have that, now I have a real problem. With <laughs> I can see that. Um, that makes sense to me. But alcohol, you can kind of slowly dose, or I guess. No, you uh, microdose. Can you microdose oh, with mescaline? F- for sure. Okay. Well, you can micro again. It's like dose dependent with any plant. 
It's like, how much of it are you taking? And microdosing or even just like mild recreational intoxication is totally possible with things like Datura and um, Belladonna. And you can get, you know, mildly messed up by just adding it to some beer. Um, Mandrake especially was used as a beer additive until like the German beer laws of the 1500s. Anyway, I'm doing it again. I'm digressing. Sorry, I was (laughs) encouraging. uh, So... Back to Fred M. Smith, uh, you know, as a, as a student of visionaries like Carl Jung and William James, who I, I gave that quote from, Smith's appreciation and understanding of early psychology was remarkably ahead of its time, uh, revealing a deep and experientially derived understanding of entheogenic sessions. Smith foreshadowed and accurately described what would later be termed as psychotomimetic effects of these compounds, uh, like those found in peyote. This is from his book, uh, The Higher Powers of Man. So this is from Fred M. Smith. Quote, The person who has passed up this graded development stretches forth his arms and thoughts towards infinity and inhales with full lungs the ravishing atmosphere of all human sublimity. Attaining the outmost border of human limitations, he sees and dreams of a man who is more than man, greater than himself, an angel or God. This is actually a very hermetic concept of like progressive um evolution where a man can attain such knowledge and wisdom that they can make themselves a god Mm. kind of falls into like the transhumanism stuff today but uh, it's originally a really old concept and one that's deeply enrooted in mormonism like they all become gods and get their own planets eventually and you mean like their their heaven yeah their their form of the afterlife Uh, if you're obedient and you know pious enough you you can become your own god and create your own universes with your own planets and stuff and that's what he's he's reflecting in this book. Again, quote, The observer seeing one in such ecstasy admires him or scoffs at him accordingly as he believes or doubts. He defies him or commits him to the madhouse, makes him a god or a fool. So closely juxtaposed are the extreme poles of the tangible and the conceivable. So quickly are the tears of joy changed to those of pain, the smile of a child to that of the skeptic, the convulsions of voluptuousness to the, that of the death struggle, the lyric of delirium or of mental aberration, the inspiration of the poet and the hypothesis of the scholar. This will be discussed in greater detail further along. I know I keep saying that, but the ecstatic states, which Smith was describing, often appear similar symptomatically to that of mania or psychosis, uh, hence the term psychotomimetic, which literally means to mimic psychosis. And this is what he's describing. He's, you know, when you're in these states and you're having a mystical or religious experience to those outside, the observers, they may be seeing this very manic switch from, you know, tears of joy to, you know, cries of pain. Yeah. Um, and it's all very meaningful to that person, but the, the, there's a disconnect there. Um, additionally, Smith's categor- categorical breakdown of intoxication and states of ecstasy closely resemble the checklist made by Walter Pank for the Good Friday experiment, which again, we'll get, I think we'll get to that next episode, but the Good Friday experiment. Yeah. There's a, ver- a really good checklist for like marking theophany or like how religious or how profoundly religious was this religious experience, uh, which is very subjective. So it was one of the first times somebody really categorized this and made it, um, empirically observable. And Fred M. Smith produced a checklist in this book, Higher Powers of Man, 40 years earlier that is almost the exact same. 
So again, it's like really forward thinking psychologists that I think more people in the psychedelic uh, community should know about. It's really cool. And he was a, he was a fucking prophet of the RLDS church while he's doing all this. Um, I'm not that far off of a prophet. Yeah. Anyway, as, as this language for the ineffable would not be officially coined by psychologists until almost half a century later, like I said, Mormon leader Fred M. Smith just like quietly proved himself radically ahead of his time. Unfortunately, though his impressive academic credentials and forward thinking approach to his religion and personal revelation deserved more attention. Uh, it appears that due to his position in the RLDS church, Fred's advocacy for the peyote religion and altered states remained a quietly circulated curiosity, with publications remaining largely unread or even just ignored by most RLDS church members. Unfortunately for the field of psychology and psychedelic research, due to political struggles within the various offshoot branches of the Mormon faith, Frederick chose to devote his time to managing the church and neglected his studies of deeper consciousness after the 1920s, although he continued supplying the Harvard aesthetics quietly. And he even like went to Washington, D.C. to defend the rights of the Native Americans in the peyote uh, religion, which is cool. But again, he didn't do this in any like official capacity. Well, he one was, was his income, honestly. Yeah. And well, the yeah. other one was a, a like hobby a, a and a quiet lot. passion. Right, yeah. yeah. And he did, he did this with several of his RLDS associates. So he had some support in the church and some of the church were supportive of this stuff. How but, much? Uh, they know? marched to Washington and supported Native American rights to use peyote within the Native American church. So like, that's pretty, that's pretty devoted in my opinion. But again, they didn't do so in any like official capacity as RLDS church members right. or the prophet of such. Again, he's, he's just like often woefully overlooked in this field of study. And, you know, it's weird that respected Mormon officials like that chemist I mentioned and a few others that we'll get to repeatedly tie are tied to the first academic studies of psychedelic compounds. It's fascinating. And and many of them seem to have held, held like this intimate knowledge of ecstatic states and were not originally opposed to chemically induced methods for achieving them. So like this modern image of Mormons being abstinent and like anti-drugs was not how the church was founded and until – relatively recently, not how the leaders thought about this. I'd say like next to Aryan heaven, which I, I'm certain we will be doing an episode on uh, soon. Oh, oh, we will. Uh, Fred M. is probably one of the, the one thing about Mormonism I wish I could, I could get people to like take away from this. I can um, see that. Actually, no, like Brigham Young's probably like vehement advocacy for slavery and racism. And probably like two years of homophobic rhetoric or like sex trafficking and plural marriages for, oh, with children, yeah. uh, often to their relatives. All the happy stuff. Or the Meta Mountain Meadows Massacre where Brigham ordered the deaths of 120 men, women, and children. Okay. okay. Uh, or his genocidal plot to, against the Pio Indians to free up space in Utah. This is making me just neatly like... I need a bag of chips. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Fred Smith's pretty low on my list <laughs> of things, actually. Uh, but, you know, hopefully we end up talking about that other stuff, too. Oh, we will. We absolutely will. I we'll get drunker for those episodes. <sighs> There'd just be a lot of crunching on the episode. I'll have to just, like, <laughs> just potato chips, crying, crying and alcohol. Potato chips. <laughs> yeah, I'll be taking bong rips. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let's get through this together. <laughs> okay. We're almost done. 
I gotta hurry up. We're running out of time. All right. <laughs> uh, Despite the often open use of mescaline by respected academics for nearly 50 years at that point, it was not until the introduction of synthesized psilocybin and LSD-25 that the field of psychedelic research really came into its own. Uh, in April of 1943, uh, Swiss chemist uh, Albert Hoffman intentionally ingested about 250 micrograms of LSD-25 before embarking on his now infamous bicycle ride that marks what most people recognize as the like official birth of the psychedelic renaissance. Okay, that's the official. Yeah, th- that like that moment is usually considered the birth. Uh, like Leary and Alpert and the Harvard Psilocybin Project, that's like one of the founding mo- or pivotal moments in like making it a movement. So Hoffman's subsequent observations while intoxicated on this bike ride would open the door for a new wave of psychoanalytical study on the nature of consciousness and spirituality. I believe it's actually come the bicycle day. Bicycle day is, is the holiday about that. I think Portland usually has a, a big I'm bike sure ride. That Seattle wouldn't surprise me. San Francisco. I'm and just such. wondering. Um, Freddie Mercury wrote a lot about bicycle riding. Oh, do you can think it has anything to do with it. I think, or he does just he just like, like Fat Bottom Girl? I was thinking was... <laughs> the album cover was Fat Bottom Girl on a bicycle. I think he just likes seeing booties on bicycles. All right, I'm not which... in disagreement. Who doesn't? <laughs> well, anyway, there's an excuse to um celebrate Albert Hoffman. However, you would do that. I'm not <laughs> suggesting anything, but. Celebrating this moment by, in your own way, and taking a bike ride and appreciating sweet sweet bike ride and appreciating bottom girls on bikes <laughs> or boys or boys you know gotta love yeah. them all we're inclusive here. <laughs> um, so uh, where am I? He takes his bike ride. You know, it, with the benefit of uh, like recently ingrained and academically recognized industries of psychiatry and you know the pharmaceutical chemistry industry psychedelic research was able for the first time to be spread on a truly global scale the tiny amount of lsd it took to initiate profound psychological changes made it cheap to produce and easy for psychologists to experiment with safely as it, again it like didn't seem to have any like toxic effects right it washed out pretty quickly and you just came back to normal Hoffman later remarked on his initial exposures to LSD, quote, the self-experiment, meaning the bike ride, um, showed that LSD-25 behaved as a psychoactive substance with extraordinary properties and potency. There was, to my knowledge, no other substance that evoked such profound psychic effects in such extremely low doses that caused such dramatic changes in human consciousness and our experience of the inner and outer world. What seemed even more significant was that I could remember the experience of LSD inebriation in every detail. This could only mean that the consciousness recording function was not interrupted, even in the climax of the LSD experience. Which is magical. Which is awesome. Despite the profound breakdown of normal worldview as well. Right. Um, For the entire duration of this experiment, I had even been aware of participating in an experiment. But despite this recognition of my condition, I could not, without every exertion of my will, shake off the LSD world. Everything was experienced as completely real, as alarming reality. Alarming, because the picture of the other, familiar everyday reality, was still fully preserved in the memory for comparison. So it was easy to, like, 
as a rational observer and like a scientist, observe yourself <laughs> having a, a, a subjective experience. Like right. This. Where you're like, I know this isn't real, mm-hmm. but it's real. And, and the recording function isn't messed up. So right. like you are, you still lucid have you, and you still have your morals, mm-hmm. you still have your thoughts, you still have you. So knowing that he'd stumbled upon something of profound significance, uh, Hoffman and his colleagues at Sando Laboratories in Switzerland sent samples of LSD to psychiatry departments around the world in order to see what they would make of the new drug. They just did this for free with little notes. They were like, hey, this is what this does. Just try it out. Let us know. The young and enthusiastic Dr. Stanislav Graf was one of the first to receive such samples, which came with an accompanying note, like I said, just suggesting that LSD could be used for inducing experimental psychosis. And, you know, in a time where electroshock, cold water immersions, and straitjackets were like the norm, it was believed that LSD could be of benefit to psychologists by giving them a safe and controlled journey for just a few hours. He did give them a bit of a heads up. Yeah. And it was just a, it was giving them a safe and controlled journey into complex psychotic states of being. Experiencing that. And so that they could better empathize with their patients. It was for this reason that, you know, LSD and other classic psychedelics were for a very short time referred to as psychotomimetics, like I mentioned. And this term was, you know, like I said, uh, beautifully articulated by Fred M. Smith just a half century prior or almost. The reason I think that that would be valuable is because they can experience being trapped into a world that they can't get out of, no yeah. matter how hard you try, like you said. But it's a control like setting, so like you know eventually you will. Right. But you're Which, stuck there. Right. Which they do have that to rely on. It's like, okay, this will end. Which I guess could be the lesson that they could supply to someone who does have hallucinations and can't control them. Just let them know, hey, this will end. And they can be more empathetic yeah. in that sense. And I've definitely had those moments where you're just, I want this to end. Yeah. <laughs> I'm tired. I'm tired of this. If you don't like, if you you haven't ingested something and you just go through these things periodically, it has to be exhausting. Mm-hmm. So if you can just let someone know, hey, this will end. It can't be like this forever, or mm-hmm. hopefully not. And being able to empathize that and yes. not think that they're just crazy. Yeah, you know, you're suffering with a condition instead of like <laughs> willfully or just you know by the grace of God, just like insane. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just don't know if people really think about that. No, and it, this is the, the, the real turning point for that, especially with like uh, the science of the mind. And it was for this very brief period during the 1950s and early 1960s that LSD research was like openly tolerated and even encouraged by psychi- psychiatrists and academics alike. Um, this resulted in literally thousands of documented clinical applications and subsequent observations on the effects of beneficial LSD use. For example, between 1956 and 1967, Dr. Stanislav Graf, who I just mentioned, he alone participated in approximately 4,000 LSD uh, sessions throughout Prague and North America. That's (laughs) just one doctor, 4,000 experiments. This is not a small uh, group to pull data from. This is a pretty wide pool where we're getting this research from. While the purpose of these experiments was to create an empathetic understanding between patient and doctor, it became apparent very quickly that LSD-25 had a number of other useful, like, off-label side effects. In lower doses, the chemical seemed to be used as a nootropic or a a psi vitamin, as some people called it, boosting productivity and creativity with seemingly little to no other side effects. Okay, so a psi vitamin, you could use it to, like, jumpstart 
like if you're having writer's block. Yeah. And, and this low dose regimen uh, or microdosing as it's more commonly referred to today has been called like the secret holy grail of the tech industry in Silicon Valley. Mm. Um, there's a lot of artists and a lot of uh, creative types that use microdosing as a way of like boosting just for this one purpose. So you mix education with creativity and you get this renaissance boom mm -hmm. in some kind of new industry. Yeah. That's and this could be applied. Uh, we'll get to an experiment that they, I think probably ne again next week, we're running out of time, but uh, there's an experiment they, they did just to like test how this affects different um, people. And they got like engineers and mathematicians and composers to get together and like take, uh, I think it was psilocybin. I do. I'll, I'll, I'll get, to, I don't have my notes in front of me, but we'll get to it later. It's, but it's a really cool experiment and it highlights specifically like the creative boost that this, this provides. What's the name of that experiment? Do you know? Um, Did not off no? the top of my head. Sorry. I'm a little, <laughs> I get a little branded after all this. Yeah. It's um, a lot of info. Uh, so in, in, that's what happened in low doses. In moderate doses, the substance's uh, propensity for tapping in an individual into deep mystical or subconscious realms is what provided uh, particularly useful in Graf's uh, psychotherapeutic studies. Uh, and then at higher doses, LSD regularly led to ego dissolution and profound transcendent or m mystical experiences. I guess on that note, really quickly, let's just move on to psychiatric doctors dosing mentally ill children with LSD to surprisingly beneficial effects. Oh, are we diving into that? Yeah, real quick. Okay. Yay, science. Uh, it's not all a horror show. Our dos elefantes are <laughs> running amok. Yeah, it's been almost an hour. I'm surprised they haven't lowered the flies to each other. Oh, I think, I think it might be started. I hear them. Okay, we'll get through this real quick. <laughs> Um, during the late 1950s and early 1960s, a group of pioneering therapists headed by uh, psych psychologist Dr. Gary Fisher began experimenting with the therapeutic potentials of LSD and psilocybin in treatment of childhood schizophrenia. Despite strikingly positive changes in subjects throughout the experimentation, the program was unfortunately shut down in 1963 in response to political pressure from Nix the Nixon administration. I'm sorry, when did it start? Uh, in the late fifties, I believe. So for a few years, they got to do this. One particular participant in the studied, uh, in the study identified only as Nancy was a wonderful example of the profound therapeutic potential for these compounds. While her psychedelic treatments were not intended to elicit spiritual experiences, the young girl nonetheless began to interestingly associate the treatment room with states of theophany or seeing God. Dr. Gary Fisher described Nancy's transformation as such. This is from his report. Quote, This 11-year-old girl, Nancy, was the most difficult and challenging person we treated. When first introduced to me, she was in complete restraints 24 hours a day. She was in full camisole and her legs were tied to the bed. This was necessary due to her extreme self-destructive behavior. If her hands were set free, she would gouge her eyes out, hit herself in the head as hard as possible, bite her fingers, tear out her tongue. She was totally emaciated, covered with swellings and bruises, black talk? eyes in sunken sockets. Did she talk? We'll get to that. No, she was not. She was incontinent and refused to eat. She was IV fed. She looked like be a beaten up, starved, wild eight year old woman. She made no eye contact, did not respond to any physical stimuli, attempted to make guttural noises and spit, but unsuccessfully. And she was so exhausted. The attending physician felt that she would probably die. 
All known drugs had been tried. It was frightening to treat her with LSD as my concern was her extreme frail condition and that she might die during a session. So again, this, uh, what, what's about to happen kind of speaks to how safe the, like relatively benign these chemicals are. And there's the side effects are nothing in comparison to what's about to have, like, happen. Are these microdoses or are they? No, these are moderate doses? to high doses. Yeah. Um, uh, but with like psychiatrists in oh, the yeah, room no, and your therapist, like working with you through this therapy. Right. Back to the quote. After five sessions, five sessions, Nancy, her behavior was totally different. She wanted lots of interaction with the treatment staff, became very demanding of attention, and was jealous of other children getting attention. She became bossy, started ordering other children around, and took an I'm in charge here attitude. She wasn't hurtful to them, only making it clear that they were inferior and that she knew what was best for everyone. When another child was going to have a session, she would attempt to maneuver her way to the treatment room and had to be... Uh, and when removed became verbally, but not physically angry. When told one day that she couldn't have a test, her word for the session, whenever she wanted it, she said, Ugh, okay, then let's talk. Let's go down to the visitor's room where the sessions were held and talk. Once there, she would lay down on the couch, close her eyes and tell us to be quiet. I went over, pulled her up and sat her in my usual chair and I lay down on the couch. She got quite indignant and told me, you don't need help. I do. I want the test. She began evidencing behavior, which indicated she considered having a session a privilege. She went on her best behavior when informed she was going to have a next session, helping other children, being polite and neat, smiling and being very charming. Prior to her seventh session on one of the ward staff van, asked her what she was going to see during her next test. She replied, God and van. He laughed and asked her how she could tell the difference. Very seriously, she replied, I'll show you. You'll be there and I'll show you. Van asked, what will that be? She replied incredulously, why in the visitor's room? That's the only place you can see God. Unquote. Gets me like fucking emotional because I have kids. But like in seven sessions, this girl went from catatonic schizophrenia to helping other kids and being a, a like a helpful participant in the, in the ward. It's important to note that for Nancy, there was virtually no preparation for anything other than a typical, if unorthodox psychotherapeutic session worth additional consideration is the girl's setting. She had like almost a sterile treatment room full of doctors and staff, which seems a lot less reliably conducive to like a spiritual experience mm -hmm. than say like in a church or like in nature or somewhere yeah. where you would expect to have that. Yeah. While in no way devaluing the young girl's miraculous psychological transformations, it's surprising to me that she began to independently and almost openly associate her treatment room with experiencing what she identified as God. Well, the behavior sounds like beforehand she experienced a lot of pain and self-inflicted pain they, on top of that. She she would, uh, during sessions, often revert to her trauma and was clearly like working through her trauma, which is why her sessions proved, uh, it's again, to kind of attest to that uh, saying that psycho uh, psychedelics can be 30 years of psychotherapy in a night. It's like, you can get a lot done if you do it under the right setting. And she clearly got a lot of work done. It's, it's clear that a relief was provided oh, yeah. during yeah. the sessions. Um, the other thing that gets me upset about this is um, that Nancy was by no means the only child to undergo positive transformations or to make mystical connections to the treatment sessions. 
Again, according to Dr. Fisher, at least four other children in the 12 patient study spontaneously reported transcendent experiences during these sessions. So a third of the kids with nothing to initiate that one would think spontaneously just said this happened, which kind of speaks to its propensity to have other side effects. And again, this is what is so upsetting. Unfortunately, due to the research program's early cancellation, it's really like unknown what became of Nancy or these other children undergoing LSD or psilocybin therapy. Um, they were just kind of like left to the wind. And we don't know if this had any like long-term effects or if she reverted or we don't know anything about Nancy. Um, I think it's miraculous that she had access to these sessions and it, they were so beneficial to her, even though she had, you know, only a few of them. But this is the type of thing that could be happening in our society with these drugs. This is the thing that could be changing. And it is disgusting to me that we don't utilize them. Or that it, we at least continued the research. And, or I, yeah. I can't imagine that they didn't follow up with these children, maybe secretly. Maybe. Um, nobody's ever documented that as of, as of late. That or, is or as of available yet, to the public. It was all because of Nixon that this all happened. So, you know, yay, Nixon. And, you know, we have a similar person. That's why I'm so nervous about where we're at in today's climate. Um, we'll cover uh, Tricky Dick a little more later next episode. I don't mean to end on a shitty note. <laughs> uh, we'll leave it here for now. Uh, next episode, we'll kick things off with uh, that categorized breakdown of the variables I've mentioned, which are used to ensure that a psychedelic drug is used entheogenically. It's just like kind of driving a car. You get all the variables in order and you drive a car. Okay. So um, going over the categories next time. Yeah. And well, uh, well, you know, the spontaneous the theophany that I was just talking about can and does happen with psychedelic use. It's with that attention and manipulation of those variables that you can just almost assure that you're going to have an entheogenic session. And, you know? and make it productive. Yeah. And uh, we'll cover, like, I'll do Timothy Leary and all that stuff next episode, too. So oh, yeah. get into that and much more. But come back. Thanks, Cody. Come back. <laughs>